Well, a few weeks ago, my father and I were helping someone we know build a staircase down a dune at a beach um, so that they could have access from the house they own down to the beach. And so this is a pretty sizable dune that we're going down. So three landings to give you an idea if you know anything about code and so forth. So it's a pretty big staircase. Um, but in typical dad fashion, he tells me we're starting the day at 6 a.m. with a six-mile run on the beach. <clears throat> and so I run with them six miles on the beach. And if you've never ridden or run on the beach, it's not like running on pavement. Um, it's, it's brutal because the sand gives a little. And so it just takes more out of you. And so we, that's how we start our day. And then we build this staircase. And so all day long, it's up and down this dune. And postal diggers, you go down like two feet, and then you hit a rock. And you get out a sledgehammer because we don't have the real tools to do this. And so we're using an iron bar and a sledgehammer and trying to break through the rock and everything. So it's a long day after having run six miles in sand. So at the end of the day, I'm just a little bit tired. And um, carrying these four by fours up and down, like it's just everything about me is screaming, why? <laughs> and you need food. Like you really need food and you need to go to sleep. But instead, I need to drive home. And so uh, we stop on our way home at a 24-7 diner. Uh, I won't say the name of it, but um, we all know them. And so we stop at this 24-7 diner to have breakfast late at night. And here we are. We, we open the door. And the first thing I notice is, like, there, nobody's looking at us. Like, the, there's, there's one other person eating in this whole diner. But nobody on staff will even look up to acknowledge that we walked in. And there's a couple of people like behind the counter who's like, all right, well, I'm looking around like, is there a sign? Do I find my own seat? Do I pick where I get to sit? Or am I supposed to wait here at the door? Like, I don't know what to do in this moment. This, this is really weird. And so we just kind of walk over and take a seat. And then this person comes and eventually, like, it just becomes really obvious that there is no hospitality here. <laughs> like, this place is not hospitable at all. These people do not want us in here. Um, the, the server is like on her phone constantly, doesn't want to come get like drink order or anything. And then we realize like, not only do they not want us in here, they don't want each other in here. Because the, the two people that are closest to us behind the thing, they're like clearly fighting. Like saying things that we should not be hearing to each other, like dirty looks at each other and all this stuff. And it's just like super uncomfortable. And I come in starving to death and tired. Like I want a safe, comfortable place for me to just eat. And they don't want me here. This is just, it was awful. Uh, and, and as I think back on that, I think back on the last year plus now and where we are today. Like isn't this our cultural moment? And as I say this, understand, like, I'm saying general statements on our culture as a whole, not necessarily us here in this room, but just what we see around us. Uh, we have spent a year viewing other people as the danger. Um, and I'm not saying that's wrong, depending on how you look at it. But there's a virus. And how does this virus spread? From people. And so... We immediately, and I'm not saying this is wrong, social distance. Don't get close to people. Keep your distance from people. And then put a mask on, because we don't want the, the respiratory droplets to come out and infect other people. And so we put a mask on. And so I'm not saying those things are wrong. Like I, I love that we're doing things to try to help protect people. That is good. But do you see the effect it has had? Stay away from people, because they're a threat to you, or you're a threat to them. Hide the thing that expresses more about who you are than any other part of you. 
And what has it done to us? This increased isolation. The, the more that we have withdrawn from other people, have you seen the irony? That the more isolated we have become, the more encumbered by conflict we have become. And isn't that odd? To think, well, conflict is because there's other people. Like, you don't, you don't get in conflict by yourself, right? So what's the deal? That the more we become isolated, the more we see conflict exploding around us. How does that work? Why is that? Again, I'm not saying those things are wrong. I think it's good to, to safeguard things and all that stuff. But we have to look at, like, what, what is it that has led to the insanity that we've experienced over the last year that has nothing to do necessarily directly with the pandemic, but now we're watching the outgrowth of just so many things. And so I bring all that up to say, like, we really need to explore that. See, what is behind that? And what should we be convicted by in that? What should we learn from that? What should we grow in in response to that? All these things. Here's my ultimate question is when I think about that diner that I walked into and it was very obvious, no one wanted me there. And this is not a place for me to go and feel welcomed and loved and nourished. And what if the church felt like that? So I've actually done a little thought experiment, or not thought experiment, I've, I've actually done this experiment. For the last few weeks, I've made it a point to walk out and then walk back in and just pretend for a moment, like I'm not the pastor here, and think, what would it feel like for me to just walk in? And I so desperately want to, and I'm not saying that it feels like that diner. <laughs> Let's be clear on that. But I have to ask that question. What if someone comes in and it feels like how I felt going into that 24-7 diner. And we think about all the things that have happened over the last year, all the conflict, all the, the just increased isolation, all this stuff. Like, what if that permeates the church? And shouldn't we be the very opposite of that? And don't we want to be a place where people can genuinely belong and be known and be loved? And all of that is because of the gospel. The gospel has not changed. A lot has changed in our lives over the last year. The gospel has not. And the call of the gospel on our lives to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that has not changed. And so we want to explore this. Um, so th this is largely rooted out of Romans chapter nine. I want to read this to you. And I want you to hear this, like hear this as a pastoral charge. Paul is writing this and he's saying like, in light of the gospel, he spends 11 full chapters just unpacking this beautiful theology of what the good news is. Like our depravity, God's just insanely amazing grace and how he has rescued us and his divine providence, his sovereignty, he's carrying it through and it's, so beautiful and glorious and it has all these implications of people coming together and everything. And then he says, now, in light of all of that, now this is how you live. This is how you live. But I want to jump into verse nine. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Did you hear that? Beloved church, <laughs> let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. I mean, how much in our culture in this day and age do we want to outdo each other? The constant comparison, the constant projection of look at me. Like we love, we love to be on top, right? And he's saying, look, aim for that. Come out ahead, outdo each other, but this is what you all do each other in? Show honor to others. 
You outdo the other person in elevating them above yourself. Man. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints and their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. Whose eyes? Everyone's. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So we kind of have two groupings in there. And I want to highlight it. So we can start with that last statement right there. Live at peace with everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So you, hey, Christian, I'm addressing you. You live at peace with each other? Yeah, sure. But them? Yes, everyone, everyone. And so there's this internal and external language that's, that's coming about here that, we're, that you look back at verse 13, share with the saints in their needs and then pursue hospitality. It's both. And I'll unpack for just a moment what that means. But if we go back into verse 18, live at peace with everyone. So if we're looking at this dichotomy of inside and outside, live at peace with everyone. And we're trying to understand how. Well, peace connotes this, this idea throughout Scripture. If you go back into Hebrew, it's this shalom, this idea of well-being. It's the idea of prosperity. It's the idea of security, that you are safe and things are Right? The things are working as they should. It's good. Everything is good. God creates the world and declares it's good. There's shalom, but then that shalom, that peace has been fractured by sin that we have brought in conflict. We've brought in this curse. All this insanity has come about and yet we are longing for peace. And Paul is saying, hey, look, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Everyone. Find for everyone to enjoy peace, to enjoy shalom, to enjoy things being made right, to be prosperous, to be good and secure, to be safe. It's this internal movement of peace that is going to flow outward. And I'm going to repeat this a lot over this series, but you will not experience peace outwardly until you experience peace inwardly. That when you are at peace inside, it can translate to peace outwardly. It's, it's just so much what we are. And so it's this, this movement. If you go back to verse 13, and it talks about share with the saints and their needs. So we're thinking internally, share with the saints. Like, that's us. But then he says, pursue hospitality. And that now pushes. It's no longer just about us. It's push out. Because hospitality, in Greek, it's this philozenia. It's coming from this compound of love and stranger. So you hear how he kind of makes this huge contrast. He's like, share with the saints. Like, hey, we care for each other, love each other well. And Jesus said, that's how the world's gonna know you. Follow me, your love for one another. So this internal love that we have for each other, how we love each other is vital. But then he says, pursue hospitality. Pursue loving this stranger, the one who's not part of this. 
And so what is internal must be pushed externally. So we go from here to there. And so that's this constant tension that we see in here. And now we have to ask, like, well, how much do we see peace and hospitality in the culture around us right now? Like, this, this, is, this is a pretty high calling. <laughs> we got to care about this. We got to care about that. Like, oh, man, as far as it depends on you, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I mean, how many of you look back at your last week and you're like, I did everything I possibly could to do this, anything. <laughs> like, how many things are there in our life that we can say, I did absolutely everything possible to do that well? For me, very rarely can I say that of anything, that I did everything possible to pursue that. And yet he's saying, that's, that's, what, that's the kind of urgency that you need for pursuing peace and having peace with all. And pursue hospitality, that love for this stranger. Man, that is such a high calling, and we don't see it a lot in the culture around us. And so the question that I want us to wrestle with, with all of that set up for us now, this high calling on us, as Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. If we are to be hospitable peacemakers, with all of the high calling of that, now we need to wrestle with the question, why is it? Why is it that we don't see this a lot in our culture? Why don't we see people who are just passionate about loving the stranger and living at peace and making peace as much as possible? as far as it depends on us. Why don't we see that? And so we are in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Thank you, Heather, for reading that for us. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I want to give you some context because this, this is when a shift happens in the history of God's people, the nation of Israel. And so as this shift is happening, um, I want you to know in context what has happened is God has called out a people for himself. And so you go back generations that Abram is called out by God. He becomes Abraham and he's this father of this nation that's going to have descendants that are innumerable, like the stars in the heaven, the sand on the seashore. Like he's going to have this nation that will bless all the nations is what God has promised him. And so there are these covenants and these covenants are given to this people group. They're, they're an ethnicity. They are a people, they are a family, and they have become a nation. And so they were enslaved in Egypt, and Moses led them out of Egypt. God delivered them miraculously through the Red Sea. All these things he's provided for them. They've entered the promised land, and over and over, they've been given the Mosaic law, and they're told, like, with all these covenants, like, I will bless you. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will bless you in your obedience. And if you disobey, if you wander off, you go after strange foreign foreign gods, then they're going to be curses. Things are not going to go well for you. You're going to go into exile, and all these things are happening. And so now you just play out their history as it's generation after generation, and we're in response to this covenant, they're just breaking it. There's this gracious God who's saying, I will be the one to deliver you. I will provide for you. I will lead you, just like I led you out of Egypt. And so I'll bless you and all this as you obey me. And what do they do? They're constantly turning to false gods, to idols. They're running to other things other than God. And how is God responding? 
still just graciously trying to pull them back in. He's, he's got mediators like Moses and Joshua and all these judges that God raises to, to lead the people and help them to find some sense of sanity in the midst of just ongoing depravity that's spiraling out of control. If you want a depressing book, read the book of Judges. Like, and the, the general thesis throughout the book that repeats over and over is, and everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. Welcome to 2021. And yet we see it, and it's just a spiral of insanity. And yet God is graciously like, no, let me bring you back. And so now we come to a point in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where Israel called to look to God as their leader, and they have this track record of constantly turning away from him. Look at verse 4. It says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, look, you are old, because that's not offensive. You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. That's also not offensive, apparently. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. And I want you to hear the offense in that. Hey, we want a king to judge us like all the other nations have. And the whole point of God coming in and starting these covenants, having this relationship with this special people, is that they would not be like the other nations. And now here they are. Hey, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. We want to be like them. They're emphatic. I mean, Samuel, read through, we heard as Heather was reading it that they're like, yeah, we want that. And Samuel is like, no, I don't think you do. Like, you remember, we actually have provision for this back in Deuteronomy. It talks about, like, when you have a king, like, these are the rights of the king. They can take your kids and make them work. They're going to tax the mess out of you. You're going to have to go to their battles. may not be your battle, but you're going to fight for their battle. And like, yep, sign us up. They're emphatic. Like, yes, we want that. In verse 19, it says, the people refused to listen to Samuel after all these words. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us. Go out before us and fight our battles. <laughs> and do you see what has happened in that? Israel has rejected God. And this is what God actually says to Samuel. If you look back into verse 6, when they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord, but the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They have rejected God as king. And now the question is, how often do we? We don't live in that kind of political structure to where we have this, a monarchy. There is no king here. And I'm not even saying that, that we equate the president or any of the branches of government that we have in this democratic republic. But how often do you and I decide, nah, I'd rather you not be king God? And then we look culturally, how often do we say, oh, well, no, <laughs> we'd rather not have God as king. Who do we often want to have the highest authority in our lives? Who is king in your life? Who has the greatest authority? Whose voice do you listen to above every other voice? And I'll just be honest with you, often for me, if it's not Jesus, my true king, it's Kevin. It's, again, that insanity of 
I'll do what's right in my own eyes. And that's kind of like the crux of postmodern thought, the, the idea of relativism, that truth is relative. And so it's your context is what determines your truth. So what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. And so things like pluralism and syncretism in religious terms become rampant. That, oh, well, they believe this, and we're just all going to the same place. That is nonsense. That is not true. There is an authority who is above every other authority, and he is God. He defines what is true and what is right, but often we want to have the highest authority and hold the greatest importance in life. That's not what you see. When that is true, when I am my greatest authority, when I have the greatest importance in my life, how hospitable am I? Probably not very. And now do you see why hospitality went out the window in our culture? Because if we're all running around like we're all God, then who cares about the outsider? Who cares about the stranger that we're commanded to love? We've rejected God as king. That becomes our reality, that hospitality has no place. And yet God, the king, is insanely hospitable and shows us a different way. But watch what happens when we assume that place. Uh, if, if, if it's hospitality goes out the window, then what about peace? Like, man, you would think, like, if I am the greatest authority, like, if I had the power, then we'd be at peace. But it's so ironic that I think I have the greatest authority in, like, culture. I'm putting myself in the in personified form of culture. Like, if I have the greatest authority, like, I should have a lot of power and I should be able to quash any opposition. And yet, the more selfish we are, the more self-absorbed we are, the more narcissistic we are, the more we experience conflict all around us, and that we don't wake up to it. The conflict goes through the roof when we cannot see past ourselves. And it's because of what James said in James chapter four, the first verse, he said, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? That all of our fighting with everyone around us, that is only the outgrowth of the fighting that is within us. Which is another way of saying, if you want peace externally, you better find peace internally. That if you are at peace within yourself, then conflict can go on around you. And you're like, yeah, I'm, okay, I'm okay. I don't have to play to it. I can pursue peace in the midst of this chaos. And that doesn't mean we become detached as kind of Eastern religions will kind of push for no, it actually means we, we attach ourselves more. We care more and we lean in more, but we come from a place of peace within because God is our peace. I was um, down at the park reading earlier this week, and um, I think most of you know, like, I like cars, and so cool car drives by. I'm going to look up and be that weirdo that's like, oh, I'll appreciate that. I'll tell you that's cool and stuff like that. But this guy comes by. It's an older guy, and he's driving an Audi, and it's a sweet Audi. And he comes by, and I'm admiring it. And then he makes a turn, and I see it from the side, and he's got, like, no joke. I, and if you know him, please, I don't mean this in a mean way. <laughs> don't say anything to him. <laughs> but he's got, he's got, like, rubber bumpers lined up on the side of his car. On this sweet Audi. He's got rubber bumpers lined up along the side of it. I think, like, he really does not want you in a shopping cart or your door to open into his car. I think, how much is life like that? The Christian, you have this peace in you because you are at peace with God. He has made peace. 
And that peace now is in you. And so, like this old guy, like I wonder how long he saved up, how much research he put in. Like, I want that car. And he wanted that car because he liked that car. And now, instead of enjoying that car, he's so worried about what other people can do to that car that he's going to mess up that car <laughs> to protect that car. And I think, don't we do that? Like, I have peace in me. God, the gospel, this good news that I have been made right for all of eternity with God. He is my joy, my satisfaction. He's everything I'll ever need. And yet I live here thinking like, oh, what are you gonna do to me? I don't know if I can risk being vulnerable and hospitable to you. Because what could you do to me? I'm gonna take this super sweet car and put some bumpers around it. Keep away, keep away. And now the call of the gospel says, look at what you have. There's nothing that can come against us. You experience some persecution? (laughs) I rejoice in it. Thank God for the opportunity to suffer for the name. They kill you. (laughs) To die is gain. It's all right. What can they do to us? So let's get rid of the bumpers and enjoy the gospel and then be obedient to this. That is, God was hospitable to us and he made peace with us. Now we extend that outward and say, welcome, stranger, I love you. Come on in. We have real peace and provision to truly enjoy, but so often we don't enjoy it because we're so afraid of what others can do to us. It's crazy. Let's stop it. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else, of which they are only meant to be a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it go, snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. This world, its systems, its offerings, its leaders, all of its offerings will not bring us peace. They're meant to point us to a world beyond, to point us to God, the one who can truly bring us peace. And this is the gospel. This is the good news that God took on flesh. Jesus, the eternal son, has come and taken on humanity to enter into our mess, to pursue us, to show us who we're strangers love. That is hospitality. To come in and say, welcome into the family of God. You just need to believe. He lived a sinless life and he died the death that you and I deserve because the consequence of sin, the wages, the earned result of sin is death, spiritual death for all of eternity to be separated from God and to just endure wrath that is justly due to us. But in grace, he says, here's life and forgiveness because Jesus covered for our debt by becoming this curse nailed to a tree. He became our sin so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. 
And so put your faith in Jesus, the one who has come to make peace. And know that everything that we experience is just meant to point us to him. Now all of your suffering, Christian, is just God graciously stripping away things. Stop holding on to that and just hold on to me because I've got you. He has made peace. He has brought real peace. And so if we know that, then here's the bottom line. Above every voice, let's listen to God. Don't reject the king. Don't listen to your own voice above his. Listen to the king. We must listen and obey the voice that is above every voice, and it is God's. But I think in some of our lives, his voice, we have turned the volume down so much and just cranked the volume on so many other voices, our own, but so many other inputs. Like, think about your inputs. How much time do we spend every day on different things? And we think, okay, where was God in that? Like, you want to know what voice will lead you into life and freedom? Like, oh, it's God's. I'm like, well, how much time do you give to listening to God's voice? You know, I, I, I looked at a study that said that Um, This year, a survey has indicated that people spend um, three hours and 43 minutes a day on their phone on average. It's just your phone. That does not include tablets. That does not include a TV screen. Just phones, an average of three hours and 43 minutes on your phone. And one of the beautiful things I've told you this before, open your phone. They almost all of them now have this little thing that can tell you how much you've spent your day on different apps. Like, oh, the Bible app. Oh, I got seven minutes in. That's awesome. Instagram. Oh, oh, let's not talk about that. Facebook. <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> but the, I'm not trying to guilt you, but I really want you to just see like, what voice actually has a place in your life. And if you give minimal time to listening to God, just being in communion with him, hearing him in his word, praying to him, enjoying him, meditating, pondering this glory that is God, his grace, this gospel, all of that. And then you look at how much time you spend on everything else. Which one is actually shaping you? Which voice is actually the highest voice? Who is really king? Let's not reject God as king. Uh, I love uh, John Piper talks about um, over and over in some of his sermons when he was pastoring a church. He would talk about how in his church he really wanted some dolphin. Like, we got so many jellyfish, and I just really want some dolphins. And because the jellyfish, they essentially can just bob up and down a few inches at a time and hope that they catch a different current if they want to go a different way. But largely, they're just, they have no spine. <laughs> Spineless things just being swept away by the current. The current being culture. And it must be dolphin. You decide, I'll go this way, I'll go that way, I will decide which way I go, regardless of the current of the culture. Sometimes the current of the culture is good, and we go with it. Sometimes we need to go the very opposite way. But you make that decision. What are the inputs that are helping us to have the strength to go where we need to go? What voice do we listen to? And so as we conclude, I hear this call from God and his word. Pursue peace and hospitality. Let's be a church that loves well and invites others in to the family of God that sees people, just very practically speaking, like you see a stranger and your divine command is to love the stranger. Like, I don't know, I'm not very extroverted. I'm not either. I am an introvert through and through. That does not excuse us. Your personality is not an excuse to disobey scripture. So how do you love the stranger? Care about them. Actually care. Care. 
I'm dealing with this all the time with my kids right now, that we'll see people we know. Like they'll see friends from school out at the park or something, and because they've largely inherited my personality in some ways, that like their initial reaction is like, oh, hide with daddy. Like, oh. They like kind of smile, like I'm excited to see you. They're like, oh. And the other kid's like waving, hey, hey, calling them by name and all this stuff. And I have constantly tell them like, no, you need to look at them. Look them in the eye, smile, say hi to them. Do you know their name? Call them by name. Go ask them how they're doing. What would it feel like if you were the one excited to see them and they just did what you just did? How would you feel if you called them by name and were waving and excited and they just kind of smirked and then hid behind their mom or their dad? How would that feel? Do you hear? Like, that's, that's the answer. How do you become hospitable? Think about what it would be like to go into someone else's home that you don't know. First time there. What would you want them to do for you to make you feel safe? Well, let's do that for each other. Let's be a church that is just obsessed with making sure that nobody feels like a stranger anymore. That you're welcome here and we love you. And I actually care about you. I want to know you. I want to hear your story. So you don't know what to say when you meet someone new? Just start with a simple question like that. What's your name? Tell me, tell me about who you are. It's not hard to ask. And who doesn't want to share about who they are? We'd love to share our story. So let's be hospitable, care about people. Uh, we've titled this series, A Seat at the Table. And uh, the, the idea of that is that God has constantly reoriented his people around the table. But even in the garden, creation, Eden, What's at the middle of the garden? These two weird trees. One is a tree of life, and one is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Hey, don't eat from that one. That's not going to be good for you. Eat all you want from this one. The center of the garden is a place to eat. And then as he delivers his people from Egypt, the climax of this is the Passover. I'm about to do something incredible. Go to the table and get ready. And now you do this forever. And then Jesus comes like reimagines. So like, look, let me help you to really understand what this was about. Continue this until I come again. Keep coming together at a table. Over and over and over. I mean, you look at the end of scripture and the picture is a wedding banquet. There's a table and we're eating together. And Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, said, I'm not going to drink from this vine again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. That we come to the table, and you want to know, when you come to that table, is there a seat for me? Yes, there is. Now make sure there's a seat for them. And everyone comes to the table. There aren't limited seats. Like, there's a seat. If, if you come to the table, there's a seat for you at the table. So let's be people who invite others to the table. And you do that when you remember that you were not always there, but you have been brought through hospitality, through peace made for you. Uh, David Mathis, he says it like this. In Jesus, we find ourselves now to be the enemy who has been loved, the sinner who is saved, the stranger who is welcomed. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And welcome strangers should be quick to learn to welcome other strangers. 
Our love for outsiders runs deep as it flows from remembering ourselves to be outsiders who have been dearly loved by a lavishly hospitable God. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are lavishly hospitable. Uh, you, you cared for us and you came to us. You engaged us when we were the stranger and more than just the stranger alienated from you, we were your enemy. So God, what great love you have shown that when we were your enemy, estranged from you, you died for us. God, help us, please, to really get that, to understand the, the gravity of what it is that you love us in grace. And then, Father, please make us a church that lives in light of that love from you and lets it just overflow in love for each other and love for the stranger. God, make us hospitable. Make us actually care to know the name of those around us, to help them to know that they belong. God, open our eyes to see. Help us. We want to be obedient to you. We need you. We thank you that you provide. It's for your glory. And in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.